Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Papanez Wilbury. My name is Atticus Wilbury. And we're live on tape from Amsterdam and Montreal. Last week, we started traveling with the traveling Wilburys, going through the journey of how they all came into each other's orbits uh, and eventually laid down the track handle with care and emerged into becoming a real group. Today, we're going to trace out the second part of that story, what happened next. Uh, and when we left it last week, they were all ensconced in uh, Dave Stewart's garden shed, so to speak, getting ready to you spend know. 10 days creating an album from scratch. And in fairness to them, the combined experience, it's not a surprise that they they get the job done. They are working solidly for the better part of two weeks and uh, they have something at the end of it. They do. They have something worthwhile at the end of it. Um, yeah, it's interesting that they set themselves that deadline to get the basic tracks down and i think we said this is because dylan is about to head off on tour yeah um so they've they've got to get his contributions down um but they've got to write the songs essentially um and and with one or two exceptions these songs seem to be written in that 10-day period yeah and uh so they nominally go in with the notion of doing one song uh per day which you know seems reasonable if there's five writers there they each just have to lead off on two songs each what could uh possibly go wrong and not much goes wrong in, in fairness to them. Now, we're not exactly 100% certain of the recording order, but there is, as we mentioned in part one, a, a, a little video camera movie that came mm-hmm. with the reissue in 2007, which is up on YouTube for you to enjoy. It's about 27 minutes long. Very, very charming piece. Uh, and, a, you know, again, in true Wilbury style uh, and trying to keep people from the outside out, it does all seem to be recorded on video cameras and it all seems to be George's video camera in particular where all this footage comes from. Um, but if you watch that, it does give us a rough idea. If we if we take that as, as the recording order of songs, it does tell us potentially what order these songs are recorded. And remember, Handle With Care is already done and dusted. So they've got a, a template or a roadmap for what they want to do next. So the first track they apparently lay down is last night and um last night is very emblematic of the wilburys in terms of you know you can hear again the the back and forth it's not a uh, it's not a particularly intricate or complicated song no uh but as you say it's it's absolutely that uh skiffle for the 90s uh that or skiffle for the 80s it's that it's that sound um and what they're doing is they're kind of drawing on you know it's a slightly rockabilly sound it's a slightly skiffly sound 
um, those acoustic guitars form uh, the basis of it. And uh, yeah, that's more or less it. That's all I have it, to say. It, 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 does seem, to it. it does seem to be lead, uh, led off by, by Tom Petty. So it's a Tom Petty song, but you can hear all of them in it. And when you watch the, the little video, you, you do get this notion of uh, you see quite clearly exactly how they are working. They are sitting around in a circle recording their guitars. And when they are doing joint vocals, What's hugely charming is that the five of them are recording around the one mic. This isn't a, although Jeff has his in-studio moments for perfectionism, he also realizes what's going to get the best results. And all five of them are recording uh, those joint vocals together. It's, it's, it, that it's a charming uh, video, as you say. And uh, it's the fact that when it's their turn to take a lead line, they just take a step forward and lean into the mic. Uh, You you know, so that you, I can't imagine that ever happens these days. You know, this is this is something that happened in the sixties where you had, you know, John and Paul on one mic singing She's Leaving Home. Um it, it's it's incredible to think that that is how it was recorded, particularly as I say, in an era when digital recording is is yep. is just starting to come to the to the fore where where sort of uh, you know the track numbers, there's there's no limit and the ability to uh, punch things in um, and well, how, layer things. Yeah, and how Jeff and the engineer worked on it was they they put everyone around the mic, and because they all have voices of different, uh, let's say, loudness, uh, yeah. everyone was given a place to stand on the floor in relation to the mic with a little piece of tape. So everyone had to stand at a particular distance in order so that they'd all come through at the same level on on the one mic. Um, but obviously, it, it works a, a, a treat. Day two, we think, is Tweeter and the Monkey Man, which is really a standout track on the album. It is. I have to say, I think this is probably my favorite song uh, on the album. And uh, again, it's, it's a quintessentially Dylan track, I think, Um, you know, uh, George says in the video that he really didn't have very much uh, to do with the track that it was basically, it was Bob and Tom Petty were sitting there. They had a cassette recorder. They're just throwing with George has these things, lines, which meant nothing to him. Uh, you know, it was just Americana. And uh, then uh, they went, he said his contribution and jazz contribution was to remember the line um, that became the chorus and just then say, right, that's what we're going to take as the chorus and we'll drop that in. But, but the whole thing, which is, is just typical Dylan, not quite stream of consciousness, but one of these very long rambling stories that yeah. seems to go seems to go nowhere but everywhere at the same time. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's one of these long, long Dylan songs, very, very verbose, uh, which doesn't have a bridge, which just uh, yeah. has a refrain at the end of it. And my memory at the time is, you know, what we said in part one is that Dylan was kind of having a bit of a. Uh, you know, commercial slump and, you know, whether it was right or wrong, I think critics were snubbing him at the time. And uh, I I remember the Dylan and the Dead live album came out and Down in the Groove came out around that time. And Dylan and the Dead got a abysmal review in in Rolling Stone, like a one-star review. And I remember Tweeter and the Monkey Man hearing that for the first time thinking, my God, this is brand new Bob Dylan. It's fantastic. It's, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's Bob Dylan. He's back. He, yeah. he it did it did seem to serve uh, to to break or clear the writer's block that mm. uh, Dylan had. You know, the last few albums. You know, there'd been that live album with the Grateful Dead, but Down in the Groove was largely made up of 
offcuts and things. You know, there's a couple of tracks held over from Infidels back in 82, 83. Knocked Out Loaded was the same. You know, he wasn't he wasn't really producing new material, writing new songs. Mm. And um, there there is a sense that that uh, you know there was writer's block at this stage. And uh, I think Harrison said if the Wilburys project did nothing else. Yeah, it kind of re- reconnected Dylan with with his his writing ability. And Twitter and the Monkey Man is emblematic, I think, of that very fine balancing act that the Wilburys managed to pull off most of the time, which is um, it's a bit of fun. There's a bit of a yeah. tongue in cheek, but actually these are good songs. And, yeah. you know, Twitter and the Monkey Man, you could think it's it's not quite a parody song. It stands up on its own two feet, but you also you can also see the trick that's happening at the same time. Poor Bruce. <laughs> Poor Bruce. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, Bruce, 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 Bruce had uh, gone into bat hard for Bob Dylan at his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. I think it was in 85. You know, Empire Burlesque had come out, which is an album that I, I like, despite mm. the sort of uh, Arthur Baker sheen uh, to it. But, you know, Springsteen was saying in, in that speech, you know, the, voice of a generation and that if uh, uh you know if anybody else had put on empire burlesque it would be a career high and he really went into bat and how does bob repay him he just takes the piss with <laughs> you know Twitter, it's all yeah. it's all uh, it's all state troopers and mansions on the hill and uh abandoned factories it's 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 very funny well if there is a, a second writer on it it's tom petty who's kind of working with dylan on it at yeah. the time and you know, going back to this 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 video camera footage, there is fantastic footage of Dylan in the vocal booth singing Tweeter and the Monkey Man. And they talk about how he's fixing lines on the go and and dropping them in. And, and you know, uh, as I said in the first part, this notion that Dylan kind of dials it in or rocks up or is shambolic is not true. He's very engaged. He's on point. He's reading his lyrics. He's, you know, he's a total pro. He is. I mean, he, he has that all the way through his career that he will be changing lyrics right up to mm. the last minute you know as as the musicians are laying down the backing track he's either writing the song or he's changing the song so you can see him as you say in the vocal booth with his yellow legal pad yeah. reading the lyrics and um harrison said he did one pass at it and then he did the entire thing straight through and it's the second take is the take and he dropped in they they dropped in three or four changes lyric changes that he wanted to make uh, afterwards but essentially it's 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 what you hear is what you get and what you're struck by watching that film is actually for someone who has recorded so much music how little of it we have in studio on tape to see what's going on it's 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 actually kind of rare to get yeah. decent quality footage of Dylan in his element doing his thing and you you kind of see this happening and you think maybe you know he be he, selling himself short by not showing his process a tiny bit more, but it's part of the mystery of Dylan, I guess. But it's 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 I, really good to see. I I think this is this is the point I w- I was sort of alluding to in in last week, which is Dylan rarely seems to step outside of the character that he's created. You know, he yeah. just creates this this shell. And what is so charming about this is that he seems completely relaxed. Yeah. Um, and although there isn't a lot of footage. Uh, of of Dylan in the studio, you you get these tales creep out of 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 him being quite aloof or quite remote from the musicians sometimes. Yeah. But you 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 do get a sense that when he's with George, when he's with these guys, you see it a bit when he's on stage. If, if you know Ron Wood pops up on stage, he kind of relaxes into it and and he becomes a little looser. But he's he's very relaxed and very 
into the moment, you know? Yeah. Um, the next track up, we believe, is Rattled, which is, you know, this notion that the Travelling Wilburys is modern day skiffle. I think it's truest on Rattled. And this is, you know, Jim Keltner, who's Buster Sidebury, uh, the drummer <laughs> for the Travelling Wilburys. Um, good old Jim Keltner and his Jim Keltner fan club days and all the rest. Yeah. Jim is very much plugged into the notion of, you know, George can make things happen and you kind of do whatever George says and he's up for it because uh, he's playing the fridge on Rattled, Jim Keltner. Yeah, yeah. Keltner says, you know, he got the call and he didn't quite believe uh, what he was being asked to do or believe, you know, he's going to get there. But he said when he gets there, yeah, sure enough, there's Dylan and Tom Petty and, oh, look, it's Roy Orbison. He said, yeah, somehow George had, again, this notion of George had pulled it together. He had willed this into existence. But there's a very funny uh, little clip in in that film of Keltner drumming on the shelf of the yeah, fridge and then on the radiator away, yeah. of the fridge and, and on bottles that are in the fridge. And uh, yeah, it, it, it all is part of that slightly shambolic uh, nature. Um, so the next track then is Dirty World, which uh, again in this film has footage of them all around the mic having hilarious uh, times and genu- genuine friendly laughter with each other. Again, again, Bob Dylan song, yeah. uh, you know, and again, very funny. And uh, George is a great pains to say, you know, people take him very seriously, but he is hilarious. And and he just said, uh, what are we going to do now? And Bob said, let's do one like Prince. Um, yes. and, so, you know, and he said he just started banging away on an acoustic guitar saying, love your sexy body. Oh, baby. You know, and he said it ends up it's nothing like Prince, but you can kind of see where they're coming from and it's it's uh again it's just funny it is funny and you know it's something that i you know i think that sets bob dylan apart and also people like leonard cohen is that you know there's a humor there that a lot of people can sometimes miss yeah in their music and you know if you approach some dylan songs as if to say you know he might be laughing with you or at you when he's doing these things they can become very enjoyable and yeah dirty world is is really uh fun and it has that list at the end where they all uh, again it's the second track on the album after handle with care and it has this lovely bit where at the end where they're all singing a line each and you see them on mic leaning in and out doing their their line of uh you know the the, this strange list of what um what he loves (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, but what George said, he just handed people magazines, um, you know, so he had auto car, mag- car magazines and there was a fashion magazine. So he came up with things like, uh, you know, parts and service um, <laughs> and they were, just, they were just coming up with phrases and they just wrote them down. And then they went round in a circle and Jeff Lynn, you can see them all laughing afterwards yes the fact that every time it comes right it's they get Roy Orbison to sing the line he loves your trembling Wilbury yes um, and uh you know that that just in that Roy Orbison voice and uh <laughs> Jeff Lane is just absolutely creased up every time Roy hits this uh uh this line this line um, of trembling Wilburys yeah not traveling uh, Wilburys trembling Wilburys yes. trembling Wilbury and uh and there's a kind of there's a kind of uh you know slight swear word worked in there it's a dirty world it's a dirty world it's a dirty oh, world yes, you know yes. they, they kind of put that in as well so the whole thing is is just a joke from beginning to end and very clever and uh, what i would say is the three funniest songs on this are the three bob dylan songs yeah i think 
Yeah, he, he does cut loose uh, in that regard. Um, on, on the little film, you also see them, uh, you know, recording, you know, hanging out in the, the, the rec room, playing guitars, uh, Bob's on bass when they all rattle out ghost yeah. riders in the sky and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, the, it's, uh, it's, they, George says in the, in the piece that it's six weeks from the time that they go from playing their first chord to having the, the album finished and in the, in the can. Um, next up is Not Alone Anymore, which is, you know, the big Roy Orbison kind of focal point on the album. It closes yeah. side one on the main record. And Jeff is quite instrumental in this. Yes, yeah, so they, they see what seems to have happened is they've, they've written this song. Roy has done the vocal and then Jeff. Well, nobody seems to really quite like it, the song. They, they, mm. they all feel it, it's not really good enough for Roy. Um, it doesn't serve him particularly well. So uh, Jeff, Jeff takes it upon himself to just erase everything, um, change the chord pattern underneath. And I think overnight he, he does this and just uh, comes up so that people, they arrive the next day and Jeff has completely retooled the song. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, again, another perfect example of what Jeff, Jeff does, getting, get what Jeff does, and getting yeah. it, getting it absolutely spot on, and it's a it's a fantastic showcase uh, for for Orbison. I mean, you know, a lot of people uh, slag Jeff uh, for his do they, Beatle. Do they? They do. Do they, they do? Who um, are these people? Tease Jeff in case um, uh, the word slag doesn't travel around the world the way it does in Ireland. <laughs> but <laughs> a lot of people tease Jeff um, for his Beatle fixation. But there is plenty of evidence of Roy Orbison fixation in in, in oh, the yes. Jeff Linniverse. So, yeah, there's a track called Endless Lies, which um, he recorded in 83 and eventually came out in 86, which if you listen to Endless Lies, if you don't know it, it is Jeff doing a spot on Roy Orbison takeoff and it's a wonder endless lies didn't get dusted down for mystery girl or one of those other albums as well and you know when he put out his covers album in 2012 he does a, a version of running scared where he gets to again live out his inner uh roy orbison so jeff is totally tuned into roy and what he thinks a roy orbison uh, song should sound like particularly in in 1988 um the next track up is congratulations and this it seems to be another kind of Bob highlight. Yes, uh, this seems to be a song that Bob had uh, in his back pocket, or at least partially uh, written. Um, uh, Petty says, you know, that was really an exception that Bob came in with this song and then the rest of them contributed and finished it off. And again, what makes this song so funny is it's such a serious, such a kind of star song um, called Congratulations. You know, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's just funny. Again, it's almost sort of Bob Dylan sending himself up, I think. Uh, Olivia Harrison said at the time, you know, um, you know, we came back and we went to with uh, Jeff's wife at the time to hear what they'd done today and they played Congratulations and she didn't know whether to be happy or not. So she took it very seriously and then it was all over. They all just started laughing <laughs> and thinking yeah. that this was a, a massive... Uh, a massive joke, the song, um, but you know, it, it, it again, it does. It, it, at the time, it was striking to hear Bob kind of cut through from some of his eighties places, you know, to actually have a, yes. a song with a, a group of people. Um, then the next track up is uh, "Heading for the Light," bit of a jaunty one, "Heading for the Light." Yes, this seems to be very much a George song. There's, there's little bits of kind of spiritual enlightenment aspect coming into the song so it's 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 where he's perhaps not quite staying in character yeah 
uh, lyrically. Um, but it's it's not a song I have to say that uh, kind of registers with me. It, it's yeah. one of the slighter songs. Yeah, I think despite, uh, despite being Team George, I think this is this is. <laughs> no, I think you're right, and I think it's. I think it doesn't really. It doesn't sound as group like as some no. of the other songs. And you know, if Heading for the Light had been that B side that he'd shown to Mo Austin, Mo Austin might have gone, "Oh, okay, fair enough." Yeah, and yeah, that would have been the end of it. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Absolutely. Um, but what George did uh, lead off in in the writing of was uh, "End of the Line," which is outside of "Handle with Care" is probably the track that most people are most remember most fondly from the the project. Uh, and George apparently started writing it on a, a piano, according to Tom Petty, and then it becomes quite contagious in terms of how it, it all comes together after that. Yes, uh, this is, I suppose, there's a poignancy to this um, because of the video um, mm. and Roy Orbison's absence. But uh, again, it's it's just a great song and it's a great group performance. Yeah. Um, you know, Dylan maybe doesn't feature so heavily, but everybody gets a little kind of cameo. Um, and it, it, there's a sort of wistful, nostalgic aspect to it that's carried through into the sepia tones in the video. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably one of my favorite songs on the album. I and it say. does pay off as, a, as an album closer, you know, so it's, 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 it's great. And so what we have at this point at the end of 10 days is a bunch of tracks where they're all sitting around playing guitars to either some kind of rhythm track or Jim Keltner playing along as well. Mm. And it's it's not a fully formed album as yet. The legend sort of states that, and then, you know, and then we had the album and everything was great. Yeah. Um, but that's not totally true. Um, but, you know, because Bob's going off on tour, they take it away. It does make you wonder whether there is a, you know, a, a version of the album from that may that we haven't heard, you know, the unproduced raw acoustic version of volume one. I would, I would love to hear that. Mm. I would love to hear the session tapes for this. And I'm not aware of any bootlegs that have crept out. And, and again, I suppose that's maybe because of the nature of the recording session, you know, yeah. it was in, in Dave's shed and then the tapes were taken personally by Harrison and, and, uh, Jeff Lynn back to England to work on. So, uh, you know, there's not much going to leak out. Danny yeah. Harrison has alluded to the fact that there are one or two tracks that All were right. very un, very unfinished, um, so much so that, you know, he and Jeff worked on a couple of tracks for the uh, reissue. But uh, he has alluded to the fact that there are a couple that they didn't do anything with, that really they were too, too raw. But if you think about it, there's that first day recording in Dylan's shed. Yeah. Um, with a different Harrison vocal. Then you've got the early tracks that they do in Dave's Shed uh, before Jeff sort of sweetens everything up. You've at least got uh, an earlier version of Not Alone Anymore. Yep. I mean, you'd like to think that when Jeff says he wiped everything and replaced the chord sequence, that he made a copy and did that. <laughs> that he yes, didn't, it seems like he, he might have done that, yeah. You know, he didn't, he didn't, just, uh, he, he didn't just erase it. So it does seem to me, I, I was disappointed that, we, that, that you know, when, when it was reissued, that there wasn't more of that. But, you know, we, we live in the era of the box set, so oh, yeah. no doubt. Not long till the 40th anniversary. Um, yeah. There is little hints on the video footage of what it sounds like before the studio gets adorned. But as you said, what they actually do next is it, it uh, because George is the the ringleader for this project is that he 
takes the tapes and gets on a plane, which we also see in the video camera footage of Jeff and yes. George, thick as thieves on the plane, taking the tapes back to um, the Friar Park Studios, FP shot, um, to try and get uh, the album finished. And what they do in FP shot is spend another couple of weeks, you know, tidying up the percussion, the solos, some of George's vocals. They put horns on, they track on some horns. And we know that Tom and Roy rock up at FP Shot at some point as well. So there might be some other hanging out or vocal overdubs done. I have my own theory that the one track we haven't mentioned yet uh, from the album, which is Margarita, uh, is purely an FP Shot uh, concoction because it's very synth heavy. It's, It's very different to the rest of the album. He kind of starts off like Las Prablas de Amor by, by Queen from everyone's favourite hot space. It has this sort of noodly synth line at the start. <laughs> I, I'll shoehorn in a reference to hot space wherever I can. You think, um, it, you, you think it's more, more of a, 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 a kind of in-studio confection? I don't think it's a Dave Stewart confection. Or if it is, the, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe 10% Dave Stewart and 90% yeah. FP shot. It's, 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 it's kind of different but by the end of it you know when they're finished their work in fp shot uh they have an album uh against all odds and as you say there's a bit of contractual negotiation that needs to be done isn't there yes so again they're they're all on different uh labels so they've got they've got a warners who who are sort of in charge i suppose because it's uh george is in charge uh there's negotiation and again that the holdup seems to be with uh columbia records which is dylan's um label and that has echoes of the bangladesh concert yes. they, they uh they weren't too happy uh back then um and it's interesting that what they do is they actually form a traveling wilbury's record label they, they put it out on its own special label so that it's not Warner Brothers, it's not Dark Horse, it's not Columbia. Yeah, the album comes out on the 18th of October, 1988. And as you say, it's on the Wilbury record label distributed by Warner Brothers. And, you know, the Wilbury's joke is just run uh, into the ground <laughs> on the sleeve notes <laughs> that they are the, uh, they are all half brothers of Charles, uh, of, of sons of Charles Truscott Wilbury Sr. And, uh, you know, yeah, everyone kind of plays along with George being Nelson, Jeff being Otis, Tom being Charlie T, Roy being Lefty and Bob being Lucky. Uh, and as we said, there's Jim Keltner, Jim Horn, Ray Cooper and Ian Wallace there as well. And it's got sleeve notes by um, a pseudonym, uh, Mont- uh, Michael Palin under a pseudonym. Yes, Hugh Jampton. You, yes. you, you know that old joke. I don't get it. What's the explanation? You don't get that joke. That's because you're much you're much too young. No, I, you're much, I, I do. I do. You, uh, that's that's a 1950s goon show joke that they yes. smuggled past the censors in the 1950s. People people can go and uh, research that. That'll research be, uh, Hugh Jampton. Yes, but, uh, watch uh, your settings and filters. Um, <laughs> but the, the, yeah, the most interesting thing that I discovered uh, in, in researching this was the fact that Derek Taylor has written or had written uh, a very lengthy fictional history of the band um, that Michael Palin then used uh, to, to write his sleeve notes. But where is this uh, fictional history of the band? I'd, uh, I'd like to read, read Derek Taylor's take on this. We don't know. At the same time as the album came out, there was the single Handle With Care. And my memory at the time is, uh, you, you know, uh, that, that there was a certain, I wouldn't say low key release, but maybe it was to do with the speed of how it all came together that the first time I 
recognised the Wilburys was two things. One was I, I, I saw them advertised on the cover of a trade paper called Music Week and it was just a big logo. And then you were such a precocious ten, <laughs> such a precocious ten-year-old to be reading a trade well, press. What age would I? I would have been about fourteen at the time. And yes, Music Week was a publication that came into the house, and uh, there was the the logo was on the front, and then you know it wasn't. You know, when somebody said, hey, did you see who's in that band that you kind of went, oh, my gosh, it, it wasn't totally apparent from the advert what they were advertising. You really had to go looking for the information uh, that uh, it was please, George please, Harrison's new band. Please tell me you kept that. You've, you've got no, that wrap around. I do not. And it's a, uh, I should have, but I'm sure somebody scanned it and put it on the Internet. But the other thing I remember from the time was, um, you know, the first time I heard it, uh, was seeing the video for Handle With Care on Night Network, which was ITV's overnight mm. television show. And they had uh, they used to show videos. And my memory was they showed it and I was watching this going, holy moly, like there's yeah. there, there they all are. This is this is this is insane. There's Bob Dylan. Uh, and then when they cut back to the presenter, the presenter was phenomenally sneery about all these old farts and that's these a terrible people, record. Yeah. And let's just that that's a load of crap and all the rest. I, I was quite uh, indignant as a, as a teenage beatler at the time. Um, well, we, we, we did not get uh, the music trade papers in my house, but so I, <laughs> I did, I did not know this record was coming. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I just had no advance warning, but I do remember walking into uh, Woolworths. Do you remember Woolworths record I do. store? Yes. Um, so the general store and seeing it on the rack and, and picking it up and, and looking at the front cover and thinking that looks, that looks like, George Harrison and Bob Dylan, because there's nothing on the outside. There's nothing to yeah. indicate. Um, so, and 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 buying it uh, on that on that basis. Uh, but yeah, it, it completely blindsided me. Um, I wasn't aware it was coming at all. Yeah, that, and and that was kind of the same with the the Music Week thing. Is that it's not obvious to say that this is mm. this is you know what what happened next uh, for for all of these guys, um, uh, and. Uh, so, so the album comes out, uh, I also recall, before buying it myself, I made a friend of mine buy it so I could listen to it. That, that's kind of yeah, the currency of music in those times. Um, I was going to say that's, that, that set the template for your... Uh, <laughs> for a lot of my, uh, yeah, for a lot, a lot of my listening in future years. You listen to it first and tell me how good it is. Um, you buy that box set. But uh, what we sometimes forget is that it is successful. Like, I mean, like, uh, of course, George is coming off the success of, of Cloud Nine. Um, but, you know, it is a huge commercial success. It reaches number three, the album in the US. It sells two million copies in its first six months. It reaches number 16 in the UK, which seems oddly low in retrospect. Um, yeah. It ends up being triple platinum in the US and handle with care. Uh, although it only gets to 45 in the Hot 100, it gets to number two in the album Rock Tracks. And it, it it's a song that... You know, sometimes you don't know when songs come out, are they going to hang around or go the distance? But Handle With Care uh, certainly it still gets played yeah. today. It still yes. it still lasts. And, you know, it's worth pointing out, maybe people didn't realise it is about the Beatles. It is about the Beatles. Definitely when, is about the Beatles. You know, when he sings um, about, um, you know, uh, stuck in airports terrorised, that's the Philippines. Yes, uh, it, 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 it seemed very clear. That's the one thing it did seem to me at the time. This is him talking about being in the Beatles. This is, this is him talking about fame and the price of fame. And, you know, he's been terrorized. And uh, yeah, it, it, it uh, um, definitely, absolutely, it's about the Beatles. So the window 
is though uh, quite small because the the question is you know what are the traveling Wilburys going to do next and and end of the line gets earmarked as a second single but then as we all uh, probably remember uh, if you were there is that uh, just a few weeks later after the album came out uh, on the 6th of the ten- December 1988 Roy Orbison died suddenly and uh, you know I, I, in some ways I think the the traveling Wilburys ended when Roy died in spite of what happened next, which we'll talk about in a yeah. second. But I think it made everything else kind of, it just changed everything. I think it changed the dynamic entirely. Um, I think you're right. It changed the sound of the band. Yeah. Um, and it changed that, uh, the, the sort of inner workings of the band, uh, of the relationship. Um, I keep saying band, uh, you know, maybe get on to at some point talking about whether, is it, is it a band? Is it, is it a band in any real sense? But I think it certainly ceased to be that yes. um, uh, when, when Roy died. Well, there was, as we said, that, that kind of Bob Roy, uh, you know, uh, dynamic, yeah. you know, with George in the middle and everybody being deferential to Roy. Um, you know, I think Roy was what took it out of the, you know, rich rock stars having a laugh kind of thing uh, yes. and, and gave it a certain legitimacy. I mean, the other argument you could say about Traveling Wilbury's volume one is, you know, is it not just a version of, you know, George Harrison's Cloud 10, you know, the sequel to Cloud 9? Well, it, do you think it sounds the same? It, it has what, certain, what I mean, it's George and Jeff doing their thing. So it's, it, you can certainly what, see a lineage. What I, what I like, what I do like about, uh, uh, Wilbury's volume one is it's less of the Jeff Lynn sound. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of uh, clean cleanness, a slickness to cloud nine that doesn't follow through. It, it's got little bits. Like I don't like the little keyboard runs on Twitter on the monkey man. That's a very Jeff Lynn yeah. um, sound in the chorus, but those, those acoustic song guitars, like Congratulations doesn't sound Jeff like, yes. Not you know? at all. Not at all. I mean, that that's a song that really does not have uh, uh, Jeff Lynne's heavy hand uh, on the computer uh, <laughs> or on the or on the production console. Um, but I, I think the ethos of of you know when we was fab seems to be the sort of song that it 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 comes out of that. You know, mm. when you're, they're looking back. Uh, uh, Handle with care seems to sit between when we was fab and that song on George's best of cockamamie business, where again, he's talking about his, his role in the, in the business. So I suppose there are parallels, but I don't think it's Clyde nine. It's Clyde 10, Clyde nine and a half, maybe. (laughs) Um, So Roy Orbison dies and Tom Petty tells the the story in the Peter Bogdanovich running down a dream documentary of how, um, you know, uh, he is telephoned by George Harrison uh, to break the news. So this is, you know, six or seven weeks after the album comes out and George rings Tom to to tell him that Roy has has died. And uh, there's a beat and Tom recounts that George said to him, aren't you glad it isn't you? Which is a uh, <laughs> quite a quite a quite an amusing uh, and interesting thing to say. But, you know, in subsequent interviews, George says, you know, what he normally says in these things, he said the same thing about John Lennon, which is, well, you know, he's just left this earth and he's still around us and he's still about and he's just shed this skin, et cetera, et cetera. So he used his Georgeness to try and cope with it. Yeah, there's a, there's there's an interview where you've got Jeff and George and Tom Petty sitting on a sofa. Mm. And the the interviewer throws that question and George is saying, you know, well, you know, life goes on. 
within you and without you. And yes, he does say that. He's he's on the astral plane, and you know he's he, we'll see him again. And Jeff Lynn is sitting sort of in his usual inscrutable, you know, <laughs> behind behind his aviator sunglasses yeah. and, and uh, afro, and. Uh, Petty looks really quite uncomfortable. I think at that point he's he's kind of looking down and not one. And George is the one that's that's talking quite normally. You know, it, it, there's not he's he's not showing a lot of emotion. Um, no, and I don't think I don't think that's that's put on. I think that's just his genuinely held belief. But yeah, it's 100%. uncomfortable. It's that thing. It's uncomfortable when people start talking to you about their religion, and there's an element of that. Yeah. Um, in it, and the other two are just sort of saying, "Well, okay, well, they're just sitting there, and we let George, uh, George, deal with that." But Jeff Lynn, I think, seems to be particularly affected. You know, he he makes a comment about it was just the most sickening thing to hear, and we had great plans, and Roy and I were going to work together again, and you you get a sense that that was something outside the Wilburys, they were going to do another album. Um, and of course, at this point, uh, Mystery Girl hadn't come out yet. Mystery Girl still hadn't uh, come out. And, you know, what, uh, you know, when, when Roy died at the start of December 88, um, he had just been over to Europe and he had debuted uh, the song You Got It at a, a music awards show in the Netherlands. That's where the footage from the video uh, yeah. comes from. And he'd apparently been unwell when he traveled to Europe with uh, chest pains, but hadn't really acknowledged the significance of them um, at the time. Uh, and so the, the death of Roy Orbison uh, could have meant uh, the end of the line for the Wilburys. Mm. See what you uh, did there. See what I did there. Or uh, or possibly, uh, you know, Roy could have been replaced or should they even go on at all? Um, should they have gone on a break? Because I think we should go on a break and we shall talk more Wilburys after this. End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So there was a, a, an initial thought of having people in to replace Roy Orbison because the, the first thing they do without him is the uh, end of the line video. And that's yes. apparently recorded or filmed the day after his funeral. So the four of them are at the funeral the day before. And then the next day they're, they're doing this video. Uh, again, there's raw footage of that on the, the Wilburys documentary and they're kind of jamming and hanging out. And in some ways you're kind of glad that they have each other. Yes, even I mean that that was interesting. Even on the film film set, uh, they, they picked up guitars and uh, they're they're playing and Bob's drumming and, and yeah. So yeah, it seems to be. It, I suppose it's like a wick, you know. It's it's uh, 
and serves yeah. that function. And, you know, Roy is represented by his guitar in a rocking chair and a photo and all the rest. Um, but it goes to show that there was a commercial concern at play here, that the, the Wilburys wasn't really a side project. It was selling hundreds of thousands yep. of copies and, you know, a video needed to be done. Um, and, and there was some names floated around for who could possibly have replaced uh, Roy Orbison. And, you know, it's a, you know, uh, and they, George picked up the phone to Paul McCartney and said, no, he didn't. I would love, I would love to have Paul McCartney in the Wilburys just so that George would be saying, no, no, Paul, no. Yeah. Uh, just no, using think... this, stand there. No, don't step forward quite so quickly or don't. Uh... But it does speak volumes that, you know, for all his collaborations over the years, Paul has never gone into a thing like the Wilburys or could never go into a thing like the Wilburys. And that's fine. That's I, just the way he is. Yeah. I think, I think this is something we, we, we've, touched on before this this idea of Paul being in a band, you know, and wanting to be in a band. And that was what he tried with the wings and he was took yeah. up and down the M the M1 in the back of a transit in 1972. But he's Paul McCartney. He can't be in a band unless he's going to be in a band with, you know, Eric Clapton and Roy Orbison and Bob Dylan and uh, you know, unless it's somebody of an equal yeah. standing. And Paul's not going to do that. <laughs> Um, so there were other names bandied around. Uh, Jeff was producing Dwayne Eddy at the time, and he was potentially uh, thought of as a, a, a Wilbury. Um, yeah. Roger McGuinn was also in the ether at the time. Uh, but the, probably the one I remember in the papers at the time as being a possible replacement is Del Shannon. Yes. Uh, yes, that seemed it seemed logical. He, he was sort of in the Roy Orbison mold. Yeah, he's pre-60s-ish. Uh, he, he, yeah, you know, he has a yeah, toe was, in that era. He was from that generation. He was working, um, but you know, uh, George has all, always said, you know, he was there was never uh, it was never really seriously considered that anybody would replace uh, replace him. And again, we've touched on this idea that George seems to have had or supposedly had of let's get Elvis in the band, let's get a tape of Elvis, and uh, we could we could re-record over uh, uh, something. That's that's only one source for that. But um, again, there's a bit of foreshadowing of free as a bird there. Yeah, um, we don't know. Again, you know, what, what we've kind of said is that the Wilburys, you know, could have been a footnote, could have been just a load of fanciful ideas. So we don't know if the Elvis yeah. notion ever really got followed through on or not um, in terms of, you know, whether they pulled tapes or there was just one of those ideas. Um, but it would have been interesting to pull um uh, Elvis Presley tapes and mix them in with the Wilburys. It's worth pointing out a few years ago, the comedian Neil Brennan put out a tweet reminding us of the ages of the traveling Wilburys at the time of the album coming out. These these old men. These old men of rock and roll. So just to remind yourself that when that album came out in October 88, uh, the eldest was Roy Orbison, who was 52. The youngest was Tom Petty, who was 37. Jeff Lynne was 41. George Harrison was 45. And Bob Dylan was 47. So... 37 to 52, that's a bit of a, they, like, and these were the people who were being teased for being old rock and rollers at the time. Um, Jason, I'm older than them all. Oh together. my gosh, there you go. <laughs> the, the, the puzzle of what exactly are our ages continues. Yeah. Um, <laughs> put the pieces together. Um, yeah, I'm I'm in between Tom Petty and Roy Orbison. So, you know, uh, yeah. That's that's where you want to be. Yes. Um, <laughs> steady. The uh, So, uh, there is the Wilburys, though, uh, don't uh, stop. But what does happen next is this kind of onslaught of, uh, in some part, what's the Jeff Lynn hit making machine uh, takes over for 1989. And if we spend a few minutes answering the question of what each of the individual Wilburys did next, because 
the curious thing is going into the project, the most successful person actively at the time is George Harrison. And mm-hmm. coming out of the project, the person who probably makes the least hay while the sun shines is George Harrison, who, you know, if, if you were Mo Austin or some other kind of person, you'd say, OK, you've got Cloud Nine, you've got the Wilburys, you are on a roll. Let's get another album out. Let's think of touring. Yeah. Let's think of something. And it's all the other Wilburys who actually um, managed to bask in the, in, in the sun. So the first album that comes out in January 89 is Roy Orbison's Mystery Girl. And as we said, the lead off single of that is You Got It. And that's a huge posthumous worldwide smash hit single uh, written by yeah. Roy, Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne. You know, it's 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 definitely of the Wilburys uh, genetics. And it, is, it, it, it has that sound. I mean, it yeah. just has the Wilbury sound. Yeah. Um, uh, and that leads off, you know, Mystery Girl turns into a very uh, successful uh, record, you know, and it's not just a, a Wilburys type project. Roy is working with Elvis Costello. He's working with Bono and the Edge. There's lots of different people who contribute to, to that album. Yeah. Uh, all your favorite people. And uh, then that's in January 89. Then in April 89, out comes Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever. So a project that has, uh, you know, Jeff involved as the, the producer for the whole thing. And he co-writes about half the tracks, including, you know, famously Free Fallen is a Jeff co-write. Um, so that is something that uh, comes out April 89. And the lead off track for that is I Won't Back Down. and Again, as a teenage Beatlehead at the time, that video in the post Wilburys universe was it's like, oh my God, the the, the there's lineup. Two, there's two there's two Beatles there. There's there's yeah. George and Ringo. Yeah. Um of course Ringo isn't on the album, he's just in the video. That is yes, when you actually read the track listing, Ringo is not <laughs> playing drums on I Won't Back Down, but the video is yeah, George Harrison, Ringo Starr. So 66% of the above ground Beatles and uh, Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers on playing George's uh, Strat, his famous yep. painted Strat and uh, and Tom Petty. So again, this is like a, an alternate parallel universe type, uh, um, uh, you know, traveling Wilburys type. It's, it's a mashup of the same group of people. Um, and, and that's in April 89. So you know, that to me is the shadow of the Wilburys, you know, and it is. again, it has, it's hugely it, successful. Hugely successful. It has the same DNA. It has the same sound. Uh, I mean, even even kind of lyrically, it, it has that same, uh, you know, was it the apartment song oh, yeah. uh, or Zombie Zoo. And those, those songs sort of still have that that. Uh, Sort of playfulness, really. Casual playfulness is the yeah. word. Yeah, playfulness yeah. Of, of the Wilburys project. Well, even, you know, in, in the, you know, that, that album has three big hit singles. Um, there's loads of hit singles, but, you know, the, the big ones are Free Fallen, I Went Back Down, but Running Down a Dream even, you know, brings in the Del Shannon, you know, myself and Del yes. were singing Little yes. Runaway, you know. So yeah. all these guys are in the soup at the time. The next uh, big important album that comes out is in September 89, and it's Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy. And we're now going to ask the big question as to why Bob Dylan didn't do a record with the big Jeff Lynne noise. Because Oh Mercy, (laughs) (laughs) Oh Mercy is celebrated as this return to form Dylan album. It is a great Dylan album. And uh, it's it's, the sound, though, is Daniel Lanois sound uh, because he's the producer of the album. And, you know, I, I certainly think there is a Wilbury's bounce that people are paying attention to Bob and the Wilburys are like, oh, you know, Bob's got songs in him. Bob's great. And people are ready to listen to a Bob album with slightly different ears. Um, but it's not a Wilbury sound at all. Everyone else is doing the Wilbury sound except Bob. 
Yes, I mean the the, the only song uh, I suppose is "Political World." Has mm. has a kind of Wilburys skiffly sound to it, yeah. but, but shuffle to it, um, and maybe everything is broken. But but Lanois takes it in a completely different uh, direction sonically, and by all accounts, uh, Dylan and Lanois butted heads quite a bit. Um, you know, Dylan wasn't well pleased with some of what Lanois was doing. Yeah, um, you know, he doesn't take direction well, I think, and that's again interesting in the context of the Wilburys, where you had five people. It's a collaborative affair. There's no one telling anybody what to do, presumably. It was a very short, compressed period of time. Uh, it'd be, it would be interesting <laughs> to hear what Jeff would do um, with the material on Oh Mercy, but I just don't think Jeff's perfectionism yeah. is, it w- would, would work at all with what Dylan... You know, Dylan is very much, you just go in, you record it, you, and that's it, and you move on. And if you, if you don't get it in the first take or two takes, um, you know, there, there are occasions where he just works and reworks and reworks and reworks a, a song. Um, but usually that's from a lyrical point of view. Um, yeah. I just can't see the two of them working, perhaps if they got George on board. Um, I well, I, I think the Wilburys is probably how it was going to work between Bob and, and Jeff, you know. Yeah. Um, what what happens, uh, I have to say, Oh Mercy also has, you know, my favourite Bob song is potentially left off the album, which is Series of Dreams. That's a, but it goes to show that Bob is really in a very good place in, in 89, creatively. That's the... That's the U2 song, Series of Dreams. God. That's why you like it. That's, well, that's why, why it's like so it. good, Stephen. <clears throat> is, anyway. it? is it really? Anyway. Um, and then, uh, but in October 89, George puts out an album. And, you know, he logic would dictate that, you know, that would have been ripe for another. That's where Cloud 10 should have been yes, at the end of 89, yes. you know, two years on yeah. from, from Cloud 9. Instead, he puts out the best of George Harrison, Dark Horse, 76 to 89. Um, which, catchy with, title. Very, very catchy title, which has this very dark, non-distinct cover. It's got three new songs on it. Um, there's zero promotion for it. There's, it's, it's, and it's, it tanks. It's, it's not a successful record. It, it's not a successful record. Um, it's very low key. Uh, yeah. Everything about it is low key. I mean, George George was the one who was probably most active in promoting the Wilburys. Yeah. Uh, but then he he does say, oh, I was just waiting for the other Wilburys to finish being solo artists. But you, you just have a real sense that he, he doesn't have any interest in being a solo artist at this point. Yeah. Um, that's you the know, reality you, of it. He doesn't, it doesn't matter. It matters more to you and me, Stephen, than it does to him or it did to I, him. I, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, one of the, one of the things that characterizes George's early 70s career for me, after you get uh, All Things Must Pass Out of the Way and Bangladesh, which is really a kind of a side project, is, is the lack of ambition. Um, you know, he's not driven in the way that Paul, for example, is driven to have the number one uh, uh, single to to sort of to get out there to tour to keep pushing forward. George, you, you kind of get a sense. Well, he's done everything he wants to do, and his his career sort of just peters out. Yeah, towards I mean, the he, end of end of the seventies, like after Cloud Nine, he never puts out a full studio album again in his lifetime. And you know, it it seems to it's almost as if the whole Cloud Nine thing. Uh, although he used it as a means to uh, to an end to to get the Wilburys done, um, that he he was almost reminded of all the stuff he didn't like about being 
successful and yes. just the whole hassle of it. And it was nice to maybe, you know, Trump Paul in the Battle of 1987. But, uh, you know, it didn't um, it didn't answer any, you know, he, he was getting his spiritual questions answered elsewhere. I think so. I mean, it, 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 there is a parallel, I think, with All Things Must Pass. So he, he gets he gets that album out and he's achieved that ambition. He's got the number one single. He's got the big album. He's got the critical uh, applause and he's got the standing. And he does exactly the same thing with Cloud Nine. Then he tops it by being in a, in a group with Dylan and Orbison and et cetera. And he's kind of done that. And yeah. he's you almost get a sense that he sees going back to being just another solo artist and sticking out another album or another single is, is maybe a step back. And he certainly has, he gives no evidence that he has any ambition um, in, in that respect. Yeah. He certainly, he certainly, um, he certainly seems to think about, you know, he certainly does what he wants and fair play to him, you know? Yes. I mean, the three songs that are on, the three new songs that turn up on that best of are all interesting songs. Cheer Down, I think in particular, is a great song. Um, he wrote that and gave it to Eric Clapton uh, to record for the Lethal Weapon soundtrack and Clapton prevailed upon him to uh, to, to, to record it himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a co-write with Tom Petty. So again, there's a little bit, but it's not a Wilbury's sound, despite the fact that Jeff Lynne uh, is, is on there and is, is helping with production. The other two songs... Uh, poor little girl that has a little bit of a Wilbury um, feel to it um, and cockamamie business if it was about two minutes shorter could be a Wilbury <laughs> song it's a little bit too long um, also but, him giving out about the music business again it's it's a little bit as I say it's a little bit like handle with care part two um, so uh, Jeff Lynn himself is also working on his first proper solo album as well, Armchair Theatre, but that doesn't come out until the summer of 1990. But, you know, you could certainly look at all these projects that are around and pull together uh, another Wilburys album from 1989. You know, there's there's stuff there that's all, as we say, share the genetics. But 1990 is uh, a year that actually the Wilburys do get fired up again. And the first time that the Wilburys reappear in their, you know, official four-man guise is... um, the Romanian Orphan Appeal, which is Olivia's, uh, the driving force behind that, Olivia Harrison. Yes, it's, it's called the uh, Romanian Angel Appeal Foundation. And uh, this is a charity that she sets up, but she actually uh, enlists Yoko and uh, uh, Linda and Barbara back. So you have the four wives of, of the Beatles involved in this uh, charity project. And the first thing is uh, an album um, mm. and George it sort of takes on to to gather up tracks so you've got a great song by van morrison called wonderful remark which was on the king of comedy soundtrack but was pretty pretty sort of obscure um duane eddy um has a song called the trembler um, (laughs) you see um and again george and 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 jeff lehner on that this is where you get paul simon and george harrison duetting on uh, uh from from saturday night live you're uh there you go. My favorite show. Your, your favorite show. Uh, Ringo gives a track, Elton John, uh, Stevie Wonder. So this, this album comes out and the Traveling Wilburys contribute Nobody's Child, which mm. is really the first, the first thing that they record when they get back together again in March 1990. Um, 
Yeah, not and the most not the most uplifting no for song for for <laughs> but, an appeal. Um, um, and remind me again what Paul contributed to the album. Nothing. Um, nothing. <laughs> Considering that this was, uh, yes, uh, Linda was involved in the charity. Paul doesn't, but you, it, it shows a certain would, thawing, would... I suppose. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess uh, there isn't a <laughs> oh. Lennon track. There, well, there isn't a Lennon track either. You would no. think, uh, you, you yeah, know, Yoko would have the, dusted something down. Yeah, there's there's enough in the vaults there. But it is surprising, I think, that uh, that, that there isn't a Paul track or there isn't a Lennon track. Um, Ringo contributed a live version of "With a Little Help from My Friends," which went on the B side of the twelve-inch single. All the facts, all the facts, um, all and, the facts. And, and, and all the facts. Just the facts. Nobody's <laughs> Child, tra- traditional song. Ringo's which Ringo favorite. used to he, sing. Yeah, he used to sing it when he was a kid to make his mother cry. He, tell, he talks he, about that um, in anthology. And, and there is a, there is a recording uh, with Tony Sheridan and the Beatles from nineteen sixty-one. There you go. So that, that uh, is a long shadow. But without George on that track, he doesn't play on that track. So I yeah. have to shoe on, shoehorn in as many facts as I can before you before <laughs> well, you move on to the interesting. What stuff. I remember at the time is that um, you know to to gain publicity for this. I mean, you know, in terms of uh, world events, you know, what was happening is at the end of eighty nine, you know, the so called Iron Curtain fell in Eastern Europe, and the you know what was happening in countries like Romania, yeah. uh, you know, came to light in the news, and that was one of the triggers for for this. But uh, in April nineteen ninety. George appears with Olivia on the UK talk show Wogan, which was a three nights a week, you know, big talk show at the time, hosted by um, broadcasting legend Tell Terry Wogan. Oh. And uh, the um, uh, it was odd because George's hair is quite grown out at the time. It's quite beatly his hair uh, on is, that interview, yeah. and he's uh, you know he's purely there to support Olivia. I don't think I'd ever seen Olivia being interviewed or taking a centre stage for anything before, um, so. Yeah, you can look that up on YouTube. It's uh, you know, it's, it's a very sincere attempt to try and drum up interest in the charity. But all of that charity work actually comes in the middle of the reactivated Wilburys. And the key date in 1990 is apparently the 26th of March 1990 when they reassemble at Camp Wilbury. And it's a, a, a different setup this time because there's more writing up front. Is that right? Yes, it's much more structured. Uh, so the spontaneity that 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 mark that sort of first 10 day period for the first album has gone and they've earmarked a three to four week period to really write the material and workshop the material before they start um recording um the first song that they work on is uh, inside out um and george said you know we got that down uh, within an hour of starting we had worked out the sort of musical arrangement for that um and that's when he knew he says that they were going to be able to pull this off a second time yeah that's kind of the proof of concept as to whether they're able to you know create in this kind of new atmosphere without Roy and you know the first time around as we outlined it's all there's a lot of good fortune and happenstance and this time around they're sitting down to actually do the job which is always a different for any project it's a different kind of vibe or feeling yeah volume one they're 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 sort of jamming essentially yeah um uh, and then making something up out of these tapes here there's there's much more uh, uh there's much more structure to what they're doing um and th- but there's something that happens around about this time that we could argue is in the Wilburys universe but isn't in the Wilburys universe yeah this is this is a very odd thing that happened so two days after they start so on the 28th of March Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne take a break and they go off and they record a cover of I Call Your Name uh, Hmm. with Ringo. 
Um, so this is Ringo's contribution or will be Ringo's contribution to the Lennon tribute gig that, that Yoko is organizing that's going to be on the 5th of May um, uh, in 1990. This is, yeah, this is the Liverpool dock gig that kind of yes. becomes a total fiasco car really crash, yeah crash. yeah it's 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 i mean i remember watching it at the time and you know uh the tv coverage was it was badly presented uh yeah. the crowds really didn't turn out um uh, you know george seemingly at this point was saying i don't want anything to do with this paul does his terrible um medley <laughs> live and sends along a film clip of him singing uh p.s love me too p.s uh, <laughs> uh, i just remember i just remember how terrible that was um yeah. Ringo's contribution was actually quite good so he he re-records what what is a relatively obscure uh beatles song and the band as i say is um Tom Petty, Jeff, Lynn, uh, Ringo, and Joe Walsh on guitar. So it's kind of like the Wilburys. Yeah. But it's in- it's interesting that George is not prepared to go along to that session and appear on that. Yeah, and again, it's um, it's it's kind of George just putting his foot down and deciding what he's going to do and what he's not going to do. Yeah. You know. But yeah. yeah, Jeff saying I'm going off to George, uh, going off to Ringo's now, George, just to record this thing for John yeah. Lennon. Remember John? And George yeah. saying, no, having none of it. Yeah, I'll um, see you when you get back. The The flip side of that is it's also interesting that Ringo is in LA, but he's not being invited to come and, and hang sit out. in. You know, he's not going to come in and replace Jim Keltner. He's not going to be Buster Sidebury for this project. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, you know, but Ringo that, Wilbury would be, uh, would be good. But that Lennon gig, you know, you, I, I would wonder if one of the things that maybe might have kept George away was the involvement of Paul. You know, it, it is that odd nexus at that time where you can't get all four camps in the same direction at the yes. same time. I think I think George is still at this point extremely wary of being dragged into something or or maybe tricked into something which can be presented as a a Beatles reunion. Yeah. And it's clear that none of the three of them are particularly enthusiastic about the Lennon tribute gig. You know, nobody is going to turn up in person. Yes. Um, you know, this is a tribute to John Lennon. It's in Liverpool and the other three members of his band are not going to be there. His memory served. Kylie Minogue turned up. She was the, she was, she was very big at the time. I know she's big now, but you know, that was. Uh, uh, yeah. Kylie Minogue. Uh, was Lou Reed there? Oh, I don't know. It was, it was very strange. Even, was, even, I, even, I, at, I, even at the time I realized this is not good. I, uh, I seem to have a, a terrible image in my head of Lou Reed singing uh, Mother while playing <laughs> an electric guitar. It was not, it was not good. My God, that keeps nobody happy. The Lou Reed fans won't be happy with Kylie. The Kylie fans won't be happy with Lou Reed anyway. Yep. Um, We're alienating, so, alienating people left, <laughs> right and centre. It's very good. Um, so, they had, uh, so they have writing sessions, but again, the recording sessions are kind of limited by uh, Bob going back out on his never-ending tour for what eventually turns into the Travelling Wilburys uh, Volume 3. And as a result, they get George, or they get Bob, is get, George gets Bob to sing everything in advance. Yes. So once once they have the the writing out of the way, they 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 beginning of April they start the recording session, and it just seems to be we're going to get Bob to do a lead vocal all the way through on every track. Yes. Um, uh, so that he can get back out on the road on the never ending tour because it never ends. Um, <laughs> and then they will, you know, Jeff will fix it in the mix, and the other three will do their vocal parts, and. Um, 
do the overdubs. Um, and uh, again, it, it's one of the things that you see here is uh, the publishing credits for all of these songs are to all four. It's just they all get a credit. Whereas if you go back to the, the first volume, there is more of an insight into how the publishing is broken down. So this is, this is their, they're sharing all of the writing credits across all of the tracks. Yeah. Cause the, yeah, the first album, if you look at the publishing, you can tell which, which, which songs George yes. is, is the lead person on and Tom is the lead person on and Bob is the lead person on, depending on the, the, the credits. Um, so yeah. So what happens is, you know, at the time, Tom Petty describes volume three as a little bit more rough and ready, a bit more raucous. And Dylan says himself that the new songs were more developed uh, in comparison to, quote, the scraped up jam tape approach to the the debut album, which is interesting to hear Bob be quite specific about um, yeah. what's going on there. And the yeah, volume three comes out in October 1990 on the 29th of October, uh, where everybody has new um, pseudonyms. So Jeff is Clayton Wilbury, George is Spike, Bob is Boo. That's pretty close. And Tom is Muddy Wilbury. And uh, it's dedicated to, to, to Roy Orbison as Lefty Wilbury. Um, uh, and uh, my f- memory of it is, is that it doesn't really have the impact of the first one. You know, obviously the element of surprise isn't there. The, yes. the Orbison element isn't there. Um, and the first single is She's My Baby, which doesn't... You know, it's it's a raucous, fun song, but it doesn't really have a an angle or a depth that maybe a handle with care had. No, uh, but I love that song. I really <laughs> do. I really well, do love that song. No, I mean, uh, yeah. My recollection is that this this album comes out, and it is not. It's it's well reviewed, but not uh, that well reviewed. And everyone remarks upon the fact that Orbison isn't there. Yes, and it changes the dynamic. It changes the sound. So. Um, the, there's there's more of a sameness about the about, about the songs. Um, well, it's a know, bit like uh, it's a bit like Ringo's Ringo in terms of Ringo's Ringo album is so good you don't need another yes. Ringo album, and the yeah. Traveling Wilburys Volume One is so good. That's it. That's that's where you should go to for your Traveling Wilburys. That that's that's pretty much I think the attitude that people took at the time. Yeah, but oh, there but, is good stuff there. There is really good stuff there. And it is an album, I have to say, that, uh, you know, I was disappointed when it came out. And mm. I was disappointed with some of the, for the Given that they, they had writing sessions, I think some of the lyrics could do with being sharpened up a little bit. Um, but actually listening back to it again now, where you're not... You're, you're well past the disappointment of Roy Orbison not being there. You, the element of surprise is no longer a factor. It actually holds together extremely well. And where the humor is, mm. is the fact that Dylan is all over every track. Yes. And they put some of the most inappropriate, un-Dylan-like <laughs> words into his mouth. And it's very funny. Well, yeah, like, so She's My Baby has Dylan singing that line. She loves to stick her tongue right down my throat. That one. It's like, is that I, what you're yeah, talking to? It's yeah, like he's in the I room. I mean, that, that uh, is, I mean, that, that at the time, I mean, that, that was side-splittingly funny at the time. But, you know, well, because Dylan, Dylan was coming out with stuff in 89, like, you know, the man in the long black coat and most yes. of the time and these, these very kind of things. And then suddenly he's singing that, that type of uh, lyric or, or he's doing a kind of doo-wop song on seven deadly sins um uh, 
Yeah, my, my, I remember interacting again. It kind of it did come as a bit of a surprise and first realizing it was coming when the, the She's My Baby popped up, uh, video popped up on MTV. And that opens in the funniest way with just the four of them driving this van, this it, comedy yeah. van. Um, yeah, very reminiscent of uh, Getting Closer by Wings, obviously, that video, yes. but, uh, <laughs> which is the intent, I'm sure. Um, but there's a, there's a hidden Wilbury on She's My Baby, isn't there? There is, the Ken Wilbury. Ken Wilbury. Um, and should we Ken say Wilbury's who Ken Wilbury is? Well, yes, uh, this is Gary Moore, mm. Belfast boy, Belfast boy, Gary Moore. All roads um, lead to Belfast, that, yeah. That's, that's your quiz question for this week is where was <laughs> Ken Wilbury born? Um, yeah, so he, he's he's not actually credited as Ken Wilbury, but George was giving an interview um, and uh, talking about this. And he says, that's Ken Wilbury. I hope he's listening in. Ken Wilbury, you're a very naughty boy. Uh, you wouldn't have here in the video, um, yeah. but we love him anyway. He's an excellent guitar player. So again, there's this there's this element of Python there. You know, he's a very, he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Mm. Um, so and Gary Python, Moore was obviously yeah uh, yeah. Gary Moore was obviously not prepared to uh, cram himself <laughs> into that comedy van for the video. <laughs> uh, well, Python are involved again as Eric Idle does the sleeve notes this time under uh, another pseudonym. Uh, Tiny Jampton. Tiny Jampton. I still don't get it. No, I that's don't. a small, smaller, dirty joke. It's not even a. It's not even a joke. It's a joke uh, about a joke. And even the title of the album, Volume Three, is a joke. It is actually a funny, funny thing to that call. Is, that is funny. I I have actually had several people over the years ask me about Volume Two and where can and is it out of print and can they get Volume Two? So it's a joke that keeps giving. You know. Um. So the two lead singles are "She's My Baby" and "Inside Out," which is a, a good song, and they have videos made yeah. for them. And and the final single is. Uh, Wilbury Twist, which is the last track on the album. And Wilbury Twist I, is one of those things where I think the balance of the Wilburys, you know, it's it's kind of over because it t- tilts into, oh, they seem to be having more fun than me. Um, yes. And I, I kind uh, of uh, think, oh, it's a, it's kind of a jocular song and it's it's kind of a bit I, grating and, you know, there's can, funny can... comedians in the video and... I can live. With, I can live with the song. Yeah. I think the song is absolutely fine. I okay. have no issue with the song. It's the video. Yes. And I think once you kind of start drafting in, you, you know, it's John Candy, and you, and you just think this is yes. It's we're not outside. We're we're not in, the listening audience is not included in this joke. Yeah. This is there. This is a joke for the people in the video. Yeah. There's two um, versions of the video. One of them is is very celeb heavy, and it has such yeah. luminaries as Whoopi Goldberg and Woody Harrelson and Jimmy Nail and. Uh, as we said, John, all, all, John all Candy and Eric Idle and all, oh yeah, all the people in the phone book um, are, are, are kind of doing the Wilbury twist. Ho, ho. Great fun. Um, yeah, it works as kind of a, 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 an off the cuff album closer. Um, yeah, but trying to push it forward as, as uh, I kind of feel, it, you know, the thing is getting a little bit to the, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of done what it has to do by that point. Yeah. Can I say? Uh, can I say that the song that should have been the single? Yes. One of the the if, if uh, probably the best track on it is the Jeff track. You never thought you'd hear me say that. I never thought I'd hear you say that. Which track? Uh, which track are you referring to? New New Blue Moon. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I think I think that, and I think that would have been a great single. I'm a big fan um, of Cool Dry Place. That's a very good song. That's very uh, redolent of the first album. Well, yeah, you know, I, that's I, a direct I, line. <laughs> Well, I think out of all the Travelling Wilbury songs named after things that are written on the side of boxes, uh, yes. Cool Dry Place is my second favourite. 
after handle, <laughs> after handle with care. Um, yeah. uh, and that is kind of it uh, for the Travelling Wilburys. There was, you know, ideas of could there have been a tour? Could there have been a movie? I certainly think there was scope for a tour in the universe where Roy survived and, and, and lived yeah. to see the success of the band that, you know, when they all had that run of success in 1989, a Wilburys tour made up of Wilburys material and all that Wilburys I, era material would have been really something. I think 89 would have been the tour if, that if, if Roy had survived. Um, I mean, how good would that be? And I mean, mm. what would that have done for uh, Dylan's career as well? You know, um, to have a tour where they, they, each, they each had three or four uh, solo spots or, or feature spots of Wilbury songs, you know, you would get those hits, you would have a kind of touring band like that. It's a kind of almost like an all-star band you might have <laughs> yeah. had with, 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 uh, it would have, it would have certainly knocked uh, Ringo's all-star band into the second league. Well, it's, you know, we talked in the first part about how 1986 was kind of this, this kind of aimless year for a lot of, you know, the, the kind of the rock aristocracy, but by 1989, you kind of have you know, this, this reclamation, you've, you've Paul putting out flowers in the dirt, you've the stones putting out steel wheels, you've Bob putting out Oh Mercy. And these guys start to find a way of negotiating that place. And the way they negotiate it is becoming a, a touring act. And, yeah. you know, the, 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 particularly the McCartney and stones tours that kick off that year in the, and there's a, there's a who reunion tour that, that year in 89 as well, they make insane amounts of money and, that's a template for the next 30 years of how they exist, basically. Yes, because what they do is they, they, they come to terms with and they embrace their legacy. Yeah. You know, so, so gradually, you know, McCartney uh, from, from the 76 tour where he has got half a dozen Beatles songs, suddenly 50%. 60% yeah. uh, of, the, of the material is, is, is uh, so that, that's, yeah. You know, I mean, Dylan is really the only one that, although he's singing old songs, He's not going to sing them the way you want to hear them. No, he's not doing it for, um, the, for that reason. But uh, but yeah, they they kind of this is this is the path out, and maybe yes. maybe that's something that just didn't appeal to George. Well, George does, you know, he eventually ventures back onto the live stage in '91 when he does the, the the dates in Japan with Eric Clapton, and he's asked in the aftermath of of that tour, you know, um, you know, when he's being interviewed, you know, would he do a traveling Wilburys tour? So in, even in 91, he's kind of thinking, oh, you know, I'd like to do that. You know, and I've my mind that, you know, would we do a solo set each and then a Wilburys set or would we all go on as the Wilburys or, you know, could we all sing Blown in the Wind and Bob could sing something? And, you know, George was a bit of a, a dreamer, really, I think, you yeah. know, it's and the that we got as much out of the traveling Wilburys as we did is due to his dreaming and vision and his, you know, as we've said repeatedly, willing it into existence. There was one other notion though, which was a traveling Wilburys movie. And I'm kind of glad that didn't happen. That might've been again, yes. more fun for them than us. I, I think so. I mean, George is very clear uh, in an interview in 1992 that they, they had a director on board, they had a studio book, they were going to make a, a film of every song. Um, if that's, all it had been, um, but you know, no, no one needs to see Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Roy Orbison in another goodbye to Broad Street. Give my well, regards to Broad Street. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and certainly, you know, you think if anyone 
wanted to run away from the mu- movie business in uh, at the late eighties, early nineties. It was George, yeah. Um, but uh, he apparently did have a director, David Leyland, ready to go and studios ready to go. But uh, this was with version one of the Wilburys with Roy on board. And I think the Travelling Wilburys has aged very well. We're still very fond of the albums. You still hear certainly Handle With Care and End of the Line on the radio uh, these days. Um, The albums, because they were uh, on the Wilburys label, which was essentially George's label, they dropped out of circulation for a number of years and hard to believe, but we you couldn't pick up Travelling Wilbury's albums until they got reissued in June 2007 as, uh, you know, two CD and DVD set. And amazingly, that went back to, it didn't go back to number one. It went to number one in the UK for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of pent up demand for that and uh, went top 10 in the, in the US in 2007 top the charts here in Ireland as well and in Australia and um, sold half a million copies in its uh, first uh, three weeks in release and hung around as well and uh, is is still uh, what's in circulation at the time. Some of the other songs have appeared in different live uh, versions. Dylan has done congratulations at least once in concert, hasn't he? Yes, 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 he has. Um, uh, Tom Petty uh, drags Wilbury songs out as yeah. sort of surprise items. So he's there's a very good uh, version. I think it was a video uh, concert release, a digital release, uh, Tweeter and the Monkey Man yes. in 2008, uh, 2013. Jeff, uh, Jeff Lynn. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> performs uh, Handle With Care. Um, and he has Danny Harrison as his sport act on the tour just before the pandemic. Uh, we all had tickets to go and see that. We did, um, yeah. We're hoping that that comes back. So he he, he brings Danny on and uh, they sang it as a sort of as close to the Wilburys ever got at the concert for George. It's yes. interesting that George didn't perform, you know, when he went on his 1991 George stayed in character as George Harrison and did not reveal his true self as a Wilbury. (laughs) His his, his (laughs) true Wilbury self. Yeah, when I saw Jeff's ELO a few years ago, Danny wasn't there, but, uh, you know, halfway through he goes in that sheepish way, I'm going to do a song from the other band, the Travelling Wilburys. And uh, off he went singing Handle With Care. And yeah, it was was great to hear it. It was the Song live, best, 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 <laughs> best song, song of the, of the night. night. Yes, yes. Best song of the well, night. I'm, 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 I mean, I'm glad it didn't go into. You know, you go to some concerts these days, uh, uh, like seeing Queen a few years ago, and Freddie Mercury pops up on the screen. You're like, oh, oh in the middle. Yes. Yeah, that would be bad. But that George, 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 George credited himself as uh, Spike and Nelson Wilbury as the producer of live in Japan, ah. and uh, so there you go. And on tour, he credited himself in the tour program as uh, Nakahama Wilbury as a bit of <laughs> cultural appropriation. Oh dear, you, you wouldn't get there. away with that now these days. If you yeah, wouldn't. Down, my, no. my, my, have you heard the Warner Brothers Christmas 1988 promotional? Record? I have not. No. Where George does a very funny, uh, you know, this is uh, uh, this is Nelson Wilbury saying "Happy Christmas," cue applause, clap, clap, clap. You know, just <laughs> a happy Christmas for one of us. But uh, Pee Wee Herman, oh yes, on that uh, as Pee Wee Wilbury. So there's lots of other Wilburys. Lots of the Wil- well, there's lots of Wilburys. If you look at that traveling Wilburys documentary um, tape, there's uh, Chopper Wilbury, Edison Wilbury. Everyone's given a Wilbury name in the credits, except yeah. for the. Uh, uh, director Willie Smacks, which uh, uh, we all ter- thought that was a made-up name. I thought that was a made-up name, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so Willie Smacks, I was, I was like, "Oh, George, you and your pseudonyms." Willie Smacks is a 
when I was researching him for this is a video director. He directed um, some great videos in the 80s, um, uh, particularly for the Arrhythmics, like Missionary Man and um, It's All Right, Baby's Coming Back. And he also directed the bad video for Gummo Man Set, yeah. the one set in the fairground with the, the thing. He directed that video, uh, but he did direct the end of the line video uh, uh, as well. So he's the person who kind of pulled together all that video footage and, and turned it into something uh, watchable. Uh, Willie... Um, uh, Willie Smacks. Smacks. <laughs> we should also we should also mention uh, Ayrton uh, Wilbury. Who's Ayrton um, Wilbury? Which is Ayrton Wilbury is the pseudonym that Danny adopted. Oh yeah. Um, there are a couple of bonus tracks yeah. on the, uh, the 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 sort of little box set that came out in two thousand seven. Maxine and like a ship. Maxine is really a George Harrison song, and it's pretty finished you know that's yeah. a good vocal uh like a ship is is a kind of slightly dirgy bob dylan song but uh danny and jeff and tom finished those tracks off but danny adopted the pseudonym ayrton wilbury after ayrton it, it, you know it's it, there's a there's a bit in the wilbury's documentary which is obviously filmed in 1988 and you know danny's not in it but he would have been 10 at the time and they talk yeah. at one point about how they're just playing guitars into the night and telling the kids to go away and go asleep yes. and just just ignore just you know mind yourselves so i'm assuming danny was was knocking around at that point which is 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 nice to think um you know there's there's a there's a uh you know post wilbury's you know george and uh tom and bob and jeff all go off and and do their own things they remained good friends and didn't fall out of favor with each other but there was never really any further official wilbury's business after the the 1990 91 album and singles no, I mean, I think uh, they all acknowledged that really it was George was the, the motivating factor and mm. uh, they were waiting for him. And, and Tom Petty sort of acknowledges, you know, George blew slightly hot and cold about the tour and then things uh, moved on. You know, George anthology came along. Um, you, you, you had that. Jeff is still in those circles. He's then working with Paul and uh, the Wilbury sort of recede into the background. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... So yeah, the Travelling Wilburys. I mean, we are lucky that it exists. We are lucky that it's as good as it is. Um, and, you know, all these years later, it's, uh, you know, I, I think it, you know, these things are quite precarious, This these super group type events. And I think quality wise, the Wilburys comes out on top. I think so. I think so. Um, I, I must admit, when I first heard the first volume, I had difficulty sort of accepting it as a band. Yeah. I think simply simply because the five people involved are were so huge and, yeah. and had such strong personalities and such such uh, defined careers that um, I really did have difficulty thinking of this as being anything other than just five people larking around. But I I think with hindsight, which is a great thing, um, <laughs> uh, I think with hindsight, I think that's what that's what makes it so charming. Um, yeah, and I think there might have been at the time a certain. Um, you know, a certain kind of seriousness that, you know, you know, rock and roll has to have a certain type of heaviness or authenticity. And, you know, that balance of when you introduce something humorous or playful can sometimes go horribly wrong and can yeah. be really, you know, not enjoyable. And again, it's that tip of, oh, you're having fun, but I'm not. But the yeah. Wilburys, you know, there's a lot of songwriting and craft that kind of rises to the top. And I think that's that's what makes it uh, makes it last 
Yes, and I mean, I think I'm. I think I think it ended at the right time. Yeah, uh, you know, I think it. Did. I would. I would love to have had volume two uh, with uh, with with Roy Orbison, but I think I think Wilbury Twist is is the point at which. Yeah, it's it's run its course. But what do you think, everybody? Um, go back and listen to your traveling Wilbury's records and uh, see if they're as good as you remember them or what was your take on them if uh, if you were around when they came out. Um, you know, we're available in all the usual places. We're on Twitter at Beatles Pod. The Nothing's Real Facebook group is there. All these things can be accessed via our website, www.nothingisrealpod.com. There's a contact us tab there with all those links. We've got TikToks and all sorts of things these days. I don't know what the kids are up to. And um, but www.nothingisrealpod.com will get you there and uh, you can subscribe and support the podcast um, through the website as well. And uh, we're always glad to to hear from you all. And we're always glad to send people back to listening to the records. Uh, But for now, my name is Papa Nez Wilbury. I'm Atticus Wilbury. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.